This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, your host, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program. And I am flying solo tonight. My dear friends and colleagues, Mike Usim and Jeff Klein, are off tonight. And they are missing a wonderful show. In the first hour, I am truly thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with retired four-star General Stanley McChrystal. And I'm actually welcoming him back to the show. Mike, Jeff, and I had the opportunity to interview him uh, when he published his second book, and that's Team of Teams. And in the second hour, uh, we have a military theme. My guest is another four-star general, Anne Dunwoody. Anne wrote a book a few years ago. That book is called A Higher Standard, and you'll have a chance to hear the conversation I had with Anne when her book first came out. So since Mike and Jeff are not here to do our usual opening banter, let me jump right in and welcome my first guest now, retired four-star general Stanley McChrystal. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Anne. It's an honor. <laughs> All right. And now I I know that it's going to be Hard for me, but I know you well enough to know that you're going to want me to call you Stan. Yes, ma'am. I know that. Okay, so I am actually going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to be maybe maybe one of the few people who follow your orders on that. Uh, and But maybe before I do, let me just say I, I it's a little bit sentimental for me. Um, my father served in World War II, and he was a combat artist in World War II working for Yank Magazine. And he passed uh, just about a year ago uh, in October, October 16th. And I know that were he living, he would be so pleased and proud of his daughter having the opportunity to interview you. So I think of my father uh, here and know that he would be so pleased and proud. So let me just start with this. Well, I should say, and it's hard for me to imagine that anyone doesn't know who you are, but let me be a little bit uh, thorough here and just say that you retired after 34 years of service and you're the author of three books, My Share of the Task, Team of Teams, and both were New York Times bestsellers. And right now you are senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and a partner at the McChrystal Group, a leadership consulting firm based in Virginia. So with that, uh, Stan, may I just may I just ask you to talk a little bit about your um, I'm going to call it insistence or uh, preference, strong preference for people to call you Stan. So could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, and I'd first go back. I would have loved to meet your father. Um, <laughs> and one of the reasons is if you go back to things like Yank Magazine, what they were was a way inside the force mm-hmm. to communicate, to humanize uh, military to each other to a great degree. And it really gets to your question of why I like to be called Stan. Mm. One of the things that uh, – in an overt hierarchy or bureaucracy like the military where people wear uniforms with 
not only their rank on them, but also their unit designation. And your resume is sort of there too, if you're a parachutist, if you've done things. Mm -hmm. And if it's your dress uniform, there's also your resume, your combat ribbons and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And soldiers are very proud of that. But one of the things it does unconsciously is create a barrier. Yeah. When John F. Kennedy was trying to figure out after the Bay of Pigs what had gone wrong, somebody suggested to him that the next time generals brief you on a plan, make them do it in civilian clothes. And the point was you get mesmerized by these, the superficial part of the individual, the, you know, the badges and the, the things like that. And it's difficult to hear as clearly or to break down. And, and that's why I like to be called Stan, because if somebody starts with General McChrystal, First, I look around to see if it's my father in the room. Uh, but second, it creates a little bit of a boundary. Mm-hmm. The, it's meant to be respectful, but it creates a formality that, that I think limits some of the communication. And so I think it's helpful yeah. if people can. Did you also feel that in some sense, once you retired, that you were faced with the maybe even daunting task of reinventing yourself? Yeah, absolutely. There is the possibility of making your second career after the military being that of retired soldier. Yeah. And you can you can go out to lunch on that. You can do a lot of things, but you don't move forward. Mm. You're basically doing the same thing over and over. And that's not a bad thing if someone wants to do it. But I wanted to do entirely different things. And if I spent all my time being General McChrystal and when I walked in the room, if I looked and acted Mm. just like that, I think I'm self-limiting. And so what I want to do is I want to learn things I don't know. I want to deal with people I'd never dealt with before. I want to try things that I haven't proven I can do because that's interesting to me. And so you got to let go of some things to do new things. (laughs) That's true. So um, what particular challenges did you set for yourself then after you retired? Well, I I retired under this, you know, the notoriety of a Rolling Stone article, which created quite a thing. And and what it did was on the negative side, it put me in a real crisis of confidence. Okay. Because I'd spent 34 years after West Point defining myself as a soldier, building up my credibility, my my uh, legitimacy, mm-hmm. not just to in the military, but to myself. Mm-hmm. And you start to feel comfortable. And then suddenly, in an instant like that, uh, all of that's put into question. And so unlike some people who, who just retire quietly, not only am I leaving the military suddenly, ripping the Band-Aid off, but I'm also leaving it not with a comfortable glide slope into the uh, into the sunset, but sort of jumping off a cliff. Now, the negative part of that is it put me in a, a real point where I had to figure out who am I? Right. How right. do I feel about myself? Mm-hmm. And I, I, was, I was just extraordinarily lucky, more than anyone should be, because I had this safety net of people that I knew, some of which I hadn't seen for years. It came out of nowhere. It sort of caught me. Oh, that's great. And my wife is this extraordinarily strong Anne. Um, (laughs) And so as a consequence, um, I got the opportunity to go through that process with, you know, just this team around me. And that made it much, much easier. It still was a journey because it doesn't happen overnight. You don't just suddenly say, oh, 
you don't get up and dust off your uniform and say, okay, I'm back in the game. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a little bit of a grieving process that you don't admit to yourself at first. Mm -hmm. And it's a rebuilding of your confidence. Now, the the silver lining to that cloud Mm -hmm. was that I ripped the bandaid off. And so instead of being able to, to sort of wallow either in my victimhood or to, Mm -hmm. uh, be reclusive, Mm -hmm. I needed to move on. And so I did almost immediately. And that allows you to start thinking about other things. I I left the service officially right at the end of July uh, 2010, and I started teaching at Yale a month later. Oh, boy. And I'd never taught anything before. (laughs) And we started McChrystal Group right after that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I started a bunch of new things that demanded my attention. Mm-hmm. I'd not done them before. I had to learn some new skills. I had to develop some new relationships to do all of these things very quickly. And so there wasn't time to spend a lot of time feeling sorry for myself, mourning for the loss of military career because these things were in front of me. And I think that turned out to be, wasn't planned. But it was fortunate. Oh, so good. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, as you look back on that moment, are there um, what what would you advise your former self? You know, looking back, because wisdom we we glean sure. from experience. Yeah, there are several things, and it's funny because, in an informal sense, I get a lot of calls from military officers, some senior whose careers ended suddenly for some reason. Mm-hmm. You know, and not well. And and I think maybe I'm the poster child for surviving that. And so <laughs> kind of like the ex-alcoholic, they send people <laughs> with drinking problems too. Um, but it but allows me to think about it and give what advice I might have. And the first advice I have is when something like that happens, you think everybody spends all their time thinking about your shortcomings. They don't. They spend a microsecond and then they think about the other things of life. So the only person who obsess about about it is you. So true. (laughs) The second thing is um, you can't change the past. If you want to relitigate the past and argue about whether it was fair, whether it was right or any of that sort of stuff, you know, you can do that. But I go back to my first point. Nobody cares but you. Right, right. And so I tell people history is a great thing to study, but don't live there. You, can, you can't change the past. You can only change the future. And so the first thing you have to do is decide what you want the future to be. Right. My, I was very lucky. I mentioned with my wife, Annie, and whatnot. As I tell people, she lives life just like she drives with no use for the rearview mirror. <laughs> okay. And so it's, it's harrying when she drives, but it's great in life because it's all about tomorrow and mm-hmm. next next month and next year. And so mm-hmm. as a consequence, I I wanted to disprove people's negative opinions of me, mm-hmm. but not by arguing the basis, but by conducting myself in a way that people oh. would go, that's incongruent with something negative I heard. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. what I heard negative is true, at least it's balanced by this. And it even calls into question how true some of the negative things might be. It's not perfect, right? but it did two things for me. One, it forced me to keep trying to be better and, and think mm-hmm. in the future. And second, it actually did help heal some of the 
the wounds or right. pain over sure. time. Sure. And when I compare any wounds I have, I mean, they're so tiny compared to what other people go through that never deserved any <laughs> uh, anything like that. You know, you don't have a right to feel sorry for yourself. You know, it's uh, everybody else has got a bigger right than than I do. Oh, well, Stan, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, you remind me, I have, um, I used to be a runner. I'm now a jogger, but I have a uh, intimate running group, Mary Frances and Marcy. Marcy's a clinical psychologist, and it's very helpful to run with a clinical psychologist in the dark <laughs> because you're not facing each other. So right. it's a therapeutic stance. You're just hearing what each other has to say, and it's dark. <laughs> so you ta- end up talking about all sorts of things you might not otherwise talk about. But one of the one of the points that Marcy made one time when I was having a hard time at work, she basically said to me, Anne, you are going to take a fall. <laughs> you are going to fall. There's nothing you can do about that. You are going to fall. What you can do something about is control the fall. How do you want to fall? (laughs) And I, you know, in what you're describing here is the same. You know, it is what it is, but then how do we respond? And then how do people see you in the in the face of that of that response? So uh, I'm just curious, how did the opportunity at Yale come up? It was extraordinary. I had been out of the service for maybe a week or less than that, Mm -hmm. and I got a uh, a call from Jim Levinson, who runs the Jackson Institute. And he said, would you like to come up to Yale? And the offer was, I'd never been to Yale. (laughs) I wasn't 100% sure where it was. And um, he said, you can come up here and you can teach, or you can just come up here and be, and I'll pay you for either. (laughs) That's hard to resist. (laughs) And I thought, whoa, that's a job. And of course, being stupid, I said, no, I'll teach. And I had never taught before, so I had no syllabus or anything. But by uh, the end of August, I was starting my first course. And what was that course? It's a course on leadership. I still teach it. I'm in my ninth year. Oh, great. And I love it. But when you first start teaching, plus I was, you know, this recently notorious general. (laughs) And so as I, I have to prepare to teach. And then right before I go up to teach, I'm told that they're going to have police at my class because there's likely to be a uh, demonstration, a planned demonstration against me. Uh Well, that, you know, (laughs) you're just trying to get your confidence back. And I go, oh, I don't need this. And so I was angry about it. And then the demonstration occurred and I was angry about that because only nine demonstrators showed up. And I said, I can't get a bigger demonstration than nine. <laughs> come on. And so, you know, I said, come on, bring them out by the hundred. <laughs> and and that was the only thing that ever happened. The police became friends of mine and they laughed about it. And we just did class and we went on with life. And But, but you go through those things like a new opportunity to teach. And when I first got in there, I think the students, I was sort of like an albino unicorn. They'd never seen anything. There weren't a lot of retired military teaching at Yale. <laughs> And, uh, but the students were extraordinary and Mm -hmm. the faculty treated me well. So it just turned out to be a very comfortable, and I'm, as I say, I'm still there. Oh, that's so good. Well, let me remind listeners that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Radio, channel 132. And I realize that I've been a little remiss because I'm hogging the conversation here. 
If you would like to join us, you can feel free to call in, and the number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So come and join me and speak with retired General Stanley McChrystal. Stan. All right, so Stan, now you give me the opportunity to ask a classic question that we get periodically on leadership in action, and that is, is leadership something you can teach or is it just something that you are born with? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Ask that a lot. I don't think it's something you're born with. I think it's something you learn. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say learn, vice teach is you can be exposed to lessons, but people learn leadership through experience. They may learn it from some things that their people actually try to teach them. But the thing that after this latest book, we've come to the conclusion is leadership is not what we think it is. So if we say, can, can leadership be taught? My question would be, okay, well, what would you teach someone you wanted to be a leader? Right. (laughs) And that gets you back into, okay, well, what is leadership? Mm -hmm. And I don't think my co-authors and I came to a conclusion that leadership isn't what we think it is. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Give us one myth that you bust. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And by doing this study, it's not what we think it is, and it never has been. And so what we've done over several millennia, reinforced by our habits like writing biographies and whatnot, is that uh, these three myths are are dominant. And the first is the idea of, we call it the formulaic myth, and that's the idea that if a person has certain traits or behaviors, that they will be an effective leader, seven habits of effective leaders or, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what we found is the data doesn't support that. The experience doesn't because people can have this checklist of wonderful qualities and they can look the part, they can speak the part, they can have done certain things and they can fail and they can fail time and again. And yet people with almost no the, none of those qualities win. win. <laughs> Think of Robert E. Lee and Ulysses Grant. One was the poster boy of leadership and the other had been a failure several times in life. And yet in the war, Grant bests him, not just for logistical reasons, mm. but for other reasons as well. And we, we find that time and again, which means that there is no generic code to leadership mm-hmm. that can either be taught or born with. It's very contextual and it's always different, the requirement, because Leadership is really an emergent property that comes between the interaction of leaders and followers Mm -hmm. and the context of the moment. And so if you think of it like a chemical reaction, it has to be adapted for every unique set of situations. So a leader with this set of generic qualities brings them in. They might be magnificently successful if the contextual moment happens to fit perfectly. But in every other case, there'll be an imperfect fit. Now, there are some values that help you, some qualities that make it a little easier. But the idea of a templated approach just isn't what we found works. Oh, very good. And how about a second? What what other misconceptions do we have? Well, we like to believe that leaders should be attributed, two leaders should be attributed success or failure. In the military, we used to say, a unit's responsible for, or a leader's responsible for everything a unit does or fails to do. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> we hold the leader as the linchpin or the fulcrum of, of success or failure. And if you 
if you go back to how we study leadership, really how we look at leaders, we do it through biography, starting with Plutarch, but but really through people like Thomas Carlyle, who really propagated the great man and woman theory of leadership. You put this spotlight on the leader and you take them around the stage of their lives and that spotlight stays on the individual, which means that everything else, the other players, the contextual factors are a little bit in the shadows. Mm -hmm. And by staying on this person through their journey, you start to think they are the key thing that matters. But what we find is in reality, leaders matter, but not like we think they do. Right. They're a smaller part of the equation. Mm -hmm. I so appreciate, I so appreciate what you're saying. Um, I ask my students, I, I teach a class, not surprising, and one of the topics is leadership. And I ask my students to stop, pause, and think about leadership and to find or create an image that somehow captures leadership for them and to write a short essay explaining why this image captures leadership for me. I've been doing this uh, exercise and research project since the fall of 2001, and I now have more than 10,000 images and essays about leadership. Now, notice that I said leadership and not leader. <laughs> That's very important. So I'm looking at you know the act. How do people see the act? Um, I, with the help of Wharton Computing, I'm able to put all of the essays into a vat and separate them by uh, nouns, adjectives, verbs, and pronouns to get at the subjects, actions, qualities, and uh, agent of leadership, and then divide by uh, students who identify themselves as male or female. When I look at the pronouns, 92% of the time when the male undergraduates here, so just this population, say he, they mean that the subject of leadership is he. That may not be surprising because we tend to see things in our own image. What I did find surprising was that 85% of the time when the women identified the pronoun, the subject of the pronoun, when they said he, they meant a male image of leadership. So that that image of leadership, that great man theory, <laughs> is alive and well, even in 2018, <laughs> even in 2018. So one of the things that I like to do is just say that out loud to my students to just sort of unpack the implicit association that we have with leadership and it's it's just pervasive. We can't help ourselves. It's part of our learning and our acculture, our, our acculturation. So how about a third myth? What's another myth that uh, you're busting? The third one turns out to be what we call the results myth, and that is that we are very objective about selecting or promoting or following leaders. We look for CEOs to make money or generals that win battles or politicians that win elections. And in reality... That's not what the data tells us. The data says we follow people for largely emotional reasons. We will follow, we will promote, we will select serial failures. (laughs) And really the leader's effectiveness is in connecting with us and creating an image of a better future or better outcome for us, even though data-wise it's just not – it's not reflected. So it's another mythology that that goes into the idea that we want to put leaders on pedestals and then we want to follow them and we want them to be as near perfect as possible. 
And yet none of that is realistic. Right. And so we have a consequence. We tend to select people often for very limited reasons. We tend to follow them for sometimes very bad reasons. And then we are very disappointed in the outcome. So, Stan, as I hear you talk, am I right in understanding that these are learnings and understandings that you have come to more recently? Or is this some wisdom that you had during that 34-year career? No, that's very much recently. And I'm sure that I learned most of this by experience over time. But what happened is I went through a career trying to be a leader. I was taught as much as I could, uh, as people could point at me. I learned part. I did a lot of experiential things. But you spend a lot of time processing that. And then when I retired, I started studying this more with more time. And I wrote my memoirs. And one of the great takeaways from my memoirs was that I expected to be the star of my memoirs because (laughs) I was there. (laughs) And because the things I had done produced a certain outcome. And what I actually found is we did all these uh, interviews on my memoirs. And what I learned was my memory was stunningly incomplete. It was very rarely completely wrong but it was incomplete. So I would make a decision, then there'd be an outcome, and I would ascribe the outcome to my decision or my action. And what I found was there were hundreds of other actions that I was completely unaware of that actually contributed to the outcome much more than mine. And so while I mattered, I was much more a supporting player in my own play of my own <laughs> life than I wanted to believe. Oh. Um, and I also had studied leadership expected through the eyes of these or the lens of these myths. Mm -hmm. And yet my own personal experience kept telling me, you know, that's those myths aren't right. Right. Things don't come out like we think they're going to. And so when we started this book, we went back to first principles. We went all the way back to Plutarch and used his (laughs) model and, and read his biographies to study why we think this, what the impacts are. And we started a book without a thesis. In fact, we got more than halfway through the book before we even stumbled upon what our thesis was, except that the the belief was we don't really understand leadership and we better figure it out. And so we we went from the idea that leadership is the ability to influence others, that's Mm -hmm. sort of a simplified Mm -hmm. version, Mm -hmm. to believing leadership is this, emergent property between the interaction. And we don't control it so much as we experience it. Mm. And so as a consequence, it it gives you this appreciation that leadership is this complex thing you're always wrestling and trying to produce. And yet you're dealing with so many variables that you produce it imperfectly. Sometimes it's just perfect. Other times it's elusive but but it's almost impossible to control. Oh. And that is fascinating. <laughs> it is. And on that note, we're going to take a short break. And I understand from our producer that we may have a caller on the line. And if the caller can hang on, uh, we will welcome all callers to the show. You are listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I have the real pleasure of 
being here tonight in studio live with retired General Stanley McChrystal. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program. And tonight I have the distinct honor and pleasure of interviewing retired four-star General Stanley McChrystal. Stan, as I am calling him tonight. And I understand that we have a caller on the line, and I would welcome a caller. Hi, Ann. I'm a big fan of your show. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, that's very kind. Uh, What's your first name? Uh, my name's Michael. I'm in Dallas, Texas. Great. Welcome. What question do you Thank have you. for um, for Stan? Uh, my question for uh, General McChrystal. My dad would slap me upside the head if I called the general <laughs> by his first name. Ah. But, uh, <laughs> so my question was... Uh, General McChrystal, how does your experience in military risk-taking inform the way that you take risks as a business person and the way you advise the I'm a small entrepreneur, advise entrepreneurs like myself on taking risks and being wise, but also willing to step out there when the answer is uncertain on, on things? That's a great question. Yeah, it's a great one because it's one I've had to think about. In the military, we we spend a lot of time talking about risk, and sometimes it would be risk to the force, i.e., could you lose people or equipment to enemy fire or or to bad weather or whatever. And then there are other times about risk to failure of the mission. And so you're always trying to balance. And, of course, to to decrease the risk to the force, you do nothing. You know, that's the you know, the simplistic argument, you don't put them in harm's way. But, of course, you almost ensure you can't do the mission if you don't do something. So you're always trying to balance those two. What I found interesting when I got into the civilian world is people try to uh, assess risk in a – it is almost a mathematical way. You try to to mitigate – you first try to measure it as best you can. But, of course, it's really hard to do that because there's so many things that, that are risk to an organization. And then people try to mitigate risk to zero. And when they try to mitigate risk to zero, what I find is they try to do analysis to the point of paralysis. <laughs> and they're trying to, to uh, squeeze out everything that could be a problem. And, of course, when they do that, they often delay and they create the – the situation where the opportunity that may have been there is now gone or the risk of doing nothing, you know, comes and gets you because you didn't take an important action and and risk built up during that. I think that organizations need to really talk a lot about their decision-making vis-a-vis risk because if an organization doesn't build in an understanding that there is risk associated with decisions and accepts the fact that a certain percentage of decisions are going to produce negative outcomes, then what you do is you create an organization that is incredibly averse to making decisions. They're trying to avoid risk. And the bureaucracy of, for example, the Defense Department and the U.S. government tends to reward decision avoidance. And I found in in companies that there is a temptation to do the same. And it's not that people are negative or or lack courage. It just builds into the culture over time. I, th- I tend to recommend to people, uh, 
try to understand the risks involved. And if the risks are relatively limited and you can recover from them if things start to go badly, then I think you should delegate that down pretty low and accept a pretty high failure rate, relatively speaking. Only when a risk is existential threat to to the future of the company should you bring it up to the highest levels because you know, that always delays a decision. Plus, it shapes the organization into pushing everything up to the highest levels, which slows you down and decreases the ownership of the execution of, of uh, risks. Hopefully, that addresses it a little bit. Mm, very good. Thank you so much for that question. So, Stan, if I, if I just recap, I'm going to make sure I've been a good student here <laughs> so far. Uh, you've talked about the myth and reality of uh, leaders and leadership. And one is that we we often think that if we have all of these attributes or all of these behaviors, all of these habits, that we will necessarily, therefore, it will add up and we will be able to exercise leadership. And that's just not the case. We also tend to think of the leader as being the linchpin, the one who is primarily responsible. And as you said, uh, you've come to appreciate that, yes, the leader has a role, has an important place, but is not the be-all, end-all on the stage. And then finally, that we tend to uh, <laughs> we tend to judge leadership by the by the results. And really, what is more important is the connection between the parties at play, whether leaders and followers. So, if I could maybe uh, go back and ask you. Can you can you give an illustration maybe of that the importance of connection when you think back on your military career you know now in retrospect knowing what you know can you see that at play in the past Sure um if you think of my own personal experience leading uh you you're expected to theoretically as the leader or commander to make decisions but in reality you don't have the data or the information you're often not close enough to the problem to make the best decision. And so what we found was it's only common sense to push it down to the person closest to the problem who has enough experience and and information available to make a a good decision, which we had to sort of rewire our organization to push, you know, the requisite information down. But you also need to think of the time horizon of a decision. So certain things, a leader makes a decision and it's designed to produce an outcome in the moment. Some of those are necessary. But other decisions are designed to produce long-term sustainability in the organization. So you can do something that's very short-term. And in reality, that can undercut the longer-term culture and health of that interaction between people. So I think that as we think about it, it's it's looking at decisions and outcomes a little differently than we might have before. Think of it in business now where mm-hmm. we we expect a CEO to produce quarterly results quarter after quarter, but then we get shocked a few years later when a, a mighty company suddenly teeters over and falls and you say, what happened? Right, right. In right. reality, the important things of connecting between the followers and the leader, those things which are essential to building the strong sinew of an organization, much of which is cultural, some of which is organizational, uh, has been neglected or just not paid attention to. Yeah. Now, if we were to give concrete illustration of that, I'm I'm thinking of some of the uh, 
some of the anecdotes and the stories that you've told about your experience in Iraq. So maybe that might be a nice illustration of sort of pushing down the responsibility. Could you speak to that? Some of the things that we did when I when I first commanded the Joint Special Operating Forces, our system was designed to bring uh, decisions up to my level, at the commanding general level, to approve or give guidance on an operation. And when you're only doing an operation once every few months, that's pretty practical, and each operation is sensitive, so the desire was bring it up. Unfortunately, that creates a habit of bringing it up, and that creates right. the expectation that that's not only appropriate, that's necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we got into a much more broad conflict where things had to happen faster, that became impractical. The, the organization, the dynamics, the physics of it couldn't bring a bunch of information up. We were doing four operations a month when I took over, or one a week. You could bring it up to the commanding general to approve it. Then we, we sped up and we got up to about 18 raids a month or one oh. every other night. You could still do it, but that was about as fast as that system could could stand. And yet that was far slower than we needed to operate. We needed to speed up and ultimately did to 300 a month or 10 a night. Suddenly you can't bring them up because the senior leader just can't be in a position to do that. So we by necessity had to put, push them down, which meant that we had to push them down, but we had to push down the information necessary so that the leader at the lower level had the context to make a quality decision. Now, at first we were, I was worried about yeah. it because you're pushing it to younger people. Right. Less and, experienced. Exactly. And <laughs> right. They, and you're less in control. That's right. And so you go, wow, this is frightening. Well, the first thing we found is if you gave them the requisite information, contextual information, mm-hmm. the things I would have used, they did pretty well. They're as smart as me or smarter. <laughs> we we reprove that over and over. The other thing we found was when you push down the information, Information and the, the authority to make the decision, they took a level of ownership. Suddenly, it was almost like they did more yeah. thought and due diligence. Yeah. <laughs> and so you started to get this wonderful outcome from that. And they would start recommending things that they hadn't recommended before. So it changed the culture in a very positive way. Now, I'm still responsible. Every leader is mm-hmm. still responsible. And you have to get over the idea that you're responsible for something that you may not have really put your hands on. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. You get over it. You know, it's uh, and if you don't get over it, that's too bad because you have to unlock that in the organization. And that's what you're there for. You're not there to take the credit. You're there to be responsible, creating the environment in which those organizations can operate best. Oh, it's so good. And now you're reminding me uh, when Mike and Jeff and I had the pleasure and honor of interviewing you when your book uh, Team of Teams came out, you had a wonderful expression that has stayed with me. And that, and it may be familiar in the military and maybe it was just news to me, but it was a wonderful expression. And that is to keep your eyes on and your hands off. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a great one because... <laughs> There is a time when we were eyes on and hands off or eyes off and hands off. And that was think back in the ages of sailing ships in the Navy and you'd send a ship out. You couldn't communicate with them. You couldn't control them. So it was sort of decentralized by design, but by necessity. Nowadays with information technology, 
I used to be able to watch every operation from a predator, high-definition video camera above it, that was operating. And so the reality is not just me, but every subordinate commander could watch it. So the person who's on the ground executing is getting watched by every level of the chain of command at once, (laughs) all of whom have this ability to micromanage. But what we learned was we're not there on the ground. We don't know everything. So seeing it is of value because we can appreciate we can be prepared to reinforce or, mm-hmm. or provide support. But we learned not to touch it right? because they are actually in a better position than we are. But we could watch it and we could stay informed so that we're postured to do so many other things that are appropriate for our level. But it takes a little bit of learning. Don't touch it. Oh, very good. All right. In a moment, I think our producer is signaling to me that we may have another caller. But before we tee up that caller, I have another question for you. So you've given a wonderful illustration of, you know, the importance of that emotional connection. I'm just curious to hear, uh, you know, we all we all have great, great leaders, great men in our mind. Could you talk a little bit about one who maybe has fallen from grace for you? Yeah. Um, and this is a balanced one. It's General Robert E. Lee. Yeah. I grew up with General Lee sort of in my life. He, I grew up near his boyhood home. The centennial of the Civil War came when I was about seven years old. So it was very much in people's psyche. My mother was from the South, and so I saw things from that standpoint. Uh, I went to Washington Lee High School. I went to West Point. Right. Many years after Lee. But Lee was the penultimate example of a courtly, charismatic, very effective combat leader, successful general, and yet a, a gentleman. He, many quotes about Lee and duty and honor and those sorts of things. So for my career, Lee was always sort of there as an example of what I would love to be but never thought I realistically could be. In the summer of 2017, I actually discarded, threw into the trash, a painting my wife had given me 40 years before of Robert E. Lee, Mm -hmm. and I'd had in our quarters every year. And it was an emotional decision to make, and it was in the the wake of Charlottesville. And it wasn't because I now hated Robert E. Lee. Mm -hmm. It was that I came to the conclusion that his depiction publicly hanging in my house risked sending messages, unintentional messages about white supremacy and other things that his memory had been hijacked by to people in. So I, I threw it away. And then I started this book and we made the decision to profile Robert E. Lee because he was so important to me. I thought it would be dishonest not to Mm -hmm. include him. Right. But as we studied him, I came out with a very balanced view. And the balanced view was here was a guy who was studious, who was Mm -hmm. brave, who was loyal. He was all the things he was supposed to be, except at the critical moment of his life in 1861, he made the decision to betray his oath that he'd made at West Point, to oppose his nation, try to split it in half by fighting for the Confederacy. And he did it to support the maintenance of slavery. Now, we try to put in the context of Mm -hmm. the moment, and and I absolutely understand that. 
But the reality is he went from being perfect, which he would have never claimed to be. <laughs> he had this mythology had put mm-hmm. him on the pedestal. He went from being perfect to being very human. Yeah. To being able to make mistakes, just like I make mistakes. Yeah. Except I don't have his great gifts, but we're all human. Yeah. And so now I'm looking at Robert E. Lee as a three-dimensional human, mm-hmm. flaws and all. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing that. Let me just remind everyone that you're listening to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, and in studio tonight, I have the pleasure and honor of speaking to retired Four-star General Stanley McChrystal. Stan, and I understand that we have a caller on the line. I think it's Lee from Virginia. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ann, and um, thank you, General. Great great show. Really appreciate um, hearing all those insights. Um, it's an honor to be listening. And thank you for your service, General. Um, my question is in reference to when we think about some of the tremendous leaders that we have, leading um, the military and transitioning, um, you know, senior officers have been in the military, and senior enlisted have been in the military for, you know, for a long time, 20, up to 30 years, some up to 40 years. And they move in and they, they want to continue to serve in different capacities, and they move to the private sector. And, and I've kind of noticed that sometimes some of the senior officers, um, they come into the private sector and they're having, they, they struggle. They struggle with a different environment. I mean, again, leadership is the same, but just in a different environment. And you kind of alluded um, how operating that is is different. And so what are some of your advice, uh, two two ways? One, for the senior enlisted or senior officers that are leaving and transitioning and how they can be effective. Um, And also for employers as well. And how do we harness and how do we kind of mentor and and nudge out, so to speak, the, the strengths? from those leaders in this uh, in a new environment, whether it is in the corporate sector, um, private sector, or even in the within the federal government as well, because you know, it's a different environment working for like an EPA versus um, you know the DOD uh, DOD setting. That is a phenomenal question, <laughs> yes. and my observations and experiences match exactly with uh, your uh, description there. It is hard for a lot of senior NCOs or senior officers leaving the military. And I'd like to break it into the two parts that you did. One, the employers, and second, to the individuals. I'd first start with the employers, and I'd say that as much as we revere the military, as much as we uh, say thank you for your service, for people, senior people leaving the military, there's not much fertile ground to be hired into companies. Uh, there is sort of this sense, and I'll be very blunt with it, there are a lot of sense in businesses that says the military leader doesn't know profit and loss, hasn't worked in, is too unadaptable, inflexible. Uh, if you're a senior general, people think that you are going to bring an entourage and you want to be treated <laughs> like a general everywhere you go, and therefore they, don't, they sort of don't want to buy into all the costs of that. Um, And there's a little bit of uh, concern in in some cases that the military people are going to come in and try to take over the company. Nobody says this out loud, but it's what I've seen time and again. And I think it's unfortunate because we way underutilize the talent that is available coming out of the military. Uh, Israel does a much better job of it. They, because so many, such a greater percentage of the military population or 
Israeli population serves, people are more comfortable with that. And so I would tell corporations, take a different view. Now, having said that, now let me talk to the the departing senior military. We got to take a different view as well. You spend a life being a sergeant major or a uh, an admiral or a general. The day you retire, you are not that <laughs> because you're not in uniform. And when you go into an organization, you got to not go as sergeant major X or general Y. You've got to go as employee into that ecosystem. The fact that people don't, they're not quite as disciplined as what you saw before. They they operate differently. They want to call you by your first name, and that may be off-putting. That's the world. And if if we are as adaptable as we want to claim we are on the battlefield, we got to be just as adaptable in the civilian world. And we've got to subordinate our ego to do that. Um, you know, we may have been very, very successful back in the military, but if we're not back in the military, we can't suddenly assume that, that we're going to be as successful here. We got to prove it. And so I think that's one of the cases where we have got to be very honest. And I don't think the military services do a very good job of preparing senior people coming out because far too much of the focus is on preparing them to go work for defense contractors. And too often in that realm, what they really want is someone to leverage their old relationships so they can be business development. That's really not – I mean, there's a there's a great role for that, but I think military leaders can do so many other things if we can tap into that talent, and they can do it for a long time. Oh, boy. Thank you. Thank you, Lise, for your call. That was a great question. Yeah. And I'm hearing in your response, am I right in hearing this, that this these were some lessons that you found you had to learn in making the transition? Absolutely. you got to learn them. And the first thing is you get your feelings hurt. Because the phone doesn't ring off the hook asking you'll go be the CEO of ExxonMobil. Yes. Um, <laughs> right. You know, it's just, it's not happening. And, and it can be, it can be painful, but it's also gets you an eye into the real world. You got to adapt. We used to say you have to fight the war you're in, not the one you want to be in. You got to work in the environment you're in, not the one you wish it was. You can't replicate the military. Oh, so good. So wonderful. Well, Stan, we just have a couple minutes left, and I want to make sure that I give you the chance to do two things. And one is just a parting word of advice, if you will, to those of us who aspire to exercise leadership. So we'll start with that. Just a thought. Yeah, I think that the big thing about leadership is to be humble enough to understand what you don't know. The day you think you figured out leadership, you're incorrect by definition. And leading any organization or having a positive impact is understanding it and understanding it's constantly changing. So it's sort of a a higher level empathy to be sensitive to that and then being adaptive in that environment to impact it as you can. Mm. And I have had the pleasure of hearing you speak a little bit earlier today at our Authors at Wharton event where students could come and hear you talk about about your book, Leaders, Myth and Reality. And I I also would very I was very impressed by the fact that you reminded us all of how important um, you know, our being, who we are, our character, and the pride that you would like your granddaughters to have someday when they look back at their grandfather. <laughs> 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You, you can give away or people can take away many things from you, but they can't take your dignity. Only you can do that. And however much money you make or political power you get or whatever it is you're seeking, that really isn't something you're going to take to the grave with you. And it really isn't going to be the measure of comfort that you have with yourself. So I, I strongly recommend you really pretty regularly center yourself on what's most important. What are the values you really have? What do you want to be most known for? Every once in a while, I, I tell people to write your obituary. That's good advice. <laughs> and, and tell people what is the theme you'd like in your obituary and then live to it. Very good. And now where can people find out more about your book? <laughs> uh, it's Leaders, Myth, and Reality. It's out from Penguin, uh, part of Random House. And, of course, it's on Amazon.com. And I think it's a fascinating study, at least it was for us, of 13 very different leaders, from Harriet Tubman to Margaret Thatcher yeah. to Martin Luther. And it, it takes a different look at leaders and ties it together with what we think are some really important lessons about leadership. Very good. And how about the McChrystal Group? We're a leadership advisory firm now, 100 people, offices in Alexandria, Virginia, and London in the UK, and we help companies become more adaptable and succeed. And it's extraordinary how much you can see when people focus on being better at that, what a difference it makes. So great. Well, Stan, (laughs) thank you so much for joining me tonight in person on Leadership in Action. It's been an honor, truly. And I will say, and I say it from my heart, thank you for your service. (laughs) So (laughs) don't touch that dial. After the break, you're going to hear me talk to another retired four-star general, and she is General Ann Dunwoody, about her book, A Higher Standard. I'm Ann Greenhall, and you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Serious. XM channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.